Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today's show is through the lens of three photographers. Daniel Troppi takes photos of homeless Atlantans and tells their stories in an exhibition at Agnes Scott College. Peter Essig conveys the beauty of Fernbank Forest in his recent book. And to begin, Alan Bat is a renowned photographer who goes by the name Batman. He has been photographing food for decades, published 30 books, and worked with over 700 chefs. His latest book is Tokes in Black, a celebration of black chefs, which he says is the highlight of his career. Batman will appear with the inimitable Kim Severson as part of the Decatur Book Festival today. He joins us now via Zoom. Batman, welcome to City Lights. Well, thank you, Lois. I'm really happy to be here. And I got to tell you, you made me sound really important. You are very important and impressive. And this book is fantastic. During this year of our reckoning with racial injustice, we're hearing repeated calls for inclusivity and amplifying Black voices. Where does Tokes in Black fit into the conversation? I started a little over two years ago when I had the idea and problems in the in this country were not quite as exaggerated as they are now. And it was just, I thought it was something really good to do because like some of the chefs in the book said, gee, I didn't know the, where are all the black chefs? And I didn't know there were so many and that kind of thing. So when I first started, I I asked the first 10 chefs to do two dishes because I didn't think I'd have enough to fill up a book. As it turns out, uh, the world has turned upside down and this book seems to be very pertinent and very timely. In in the book, we have stories about when they were growing up, what they wanted to be when they grew up. Some wanted to be astronauts and musicians. It just fits in because we're trying to even the color scheme in this country and not be one particular color. So uh, it's bringing a lot of attention to the Black chefs who are absolutely wonderful. 
The book is not all, all uh, Southern cooking. In fact, it's very little, but we have a lot of soul in the book. And it's to show the diversity of these chefs. Alan, what determined the number of chefs you included? I got to 100 and I said, okay, that's enough because if you put too many in one book, the book is just too heavy and too expensive. There were a lot of chefs that I would have liked to put in that I found out after because everything was word of mouth. So I knew three chefs in New York and I said, who do you know? And then who do they know and who do they know? So it, it was just because I've done so many books, 100 chefs, and it was also a photo of the dish, a story and a recipe, which is usually two pages. And that was going to be 400 pages already. So I had to stop. Well, let's talk about that layout of the book. Two photos of the chef and their story appear on the left page. The food is on the right. Which came first, the portrait of the chef or the food depicted? It was the food. This is the first time I've ever done stories about the chefs and pictures of the chefs. It would have been out a year ago. And then I, I got close to, you know, getting the book finished. I said, you know what, we should, I have to do something different. There's a lot of cookbooks around. I've done a lot of cookbooks and I wanted this to be a little more interesting. So it took a while. It took like four months to get their stories. That was the hardest part. And so it made the whole difference. It's not just a cookbook now. It's something that I've been told will be around for a long time. And it's a part of the, the movement that's going on now. And I've heard that from several people. Tell us about the title. Toque is a chef hat in French. And most of the time, I, I seem to me, when a, a creative person, stuff just pops up in your head. And it's a lot of times in the middle of the night. And it just said, oh, Toque's in black. It just fit. I appreciated the story of Melba Wilson in Toques in Black. Her rise to success is quite impressive, having cooked at the famous Sylvia's restaurant in Harlem, her own restaurant backed by Robert De Niro. Melba Wilson credits her grandmother as a tremendous influence, saying her grandmother mixed love with every other ingredient that went into her down-home country cooking. Do you think that the chefs celebrated in your book are as intent on preserving heritage and tradition as they are in achieving recognition as sophisticated gourmet chefs? The history is not as important as their personal history. The history of the food is important, but they wanted it to diverse. And they've been working in a lot of really high-end restaurants. And they've, uh, most of them have gone to culinary school. I mean, they would like the recognition. Uh, that's the hardest thing to get because their food is exceptional. But I don't think it's putting the heritage in it. There are some that only cook food from their ancestors and stuff. Yeah, but I guess maybe a better way of putting it is honoring their families. Because that is a recurring theme throughout the book was a love of cooking learned with a parent or a grandparent. Mostly grandparents. That, that's the big common denominator in the book. Uh, it's just the nature of the, you know, the Southern history. Another outstanding story was that of the Jamaican-born Nigel Spence. It was heartbreaking to read that when he moved from Kingston to New York, kids at the Bronx Junior High were 
brutal in their ridicule of him, especially the way he spoke. And his is a story of food as refuge from a painful childhood. I think that the photo of Nigel Spence's roasted red snapper may be my favorite in the entire book. It's such a vivid still life, and the colors are so vibrant. Would you talk about that photo? Uh, You'd swear that you were in Jamaica, first of all. I think one of the reasons you might like this the most is because it looks authentic. It wasn't like everything is in exactly the perfect spot or the vegetables are perfect which is what I generally like to shoot. You know, there's a a lot of chefs who want to outdo the next person as far as visual. And sometimes it's over the top and it looks like you don't want to eat. It looks like you want to hang it on your wall. (laughs) But uh, Nigel's looks like you want to eat. It looks absolutely delicious. I guess that's his artistic eye as well. I've read that a photo shoot of food is very labor intensive. Would you tell us how you set up and photograph food? Uh, You might be disappointed when I tell you my story. (laughs) Uh, I work with the chef, I don't work with stylists. So everything you see is real and and it's from the chef's design. I, I do very rarely do I ever ask them to do differently because because it's them. What does a food stylist do? You don't use them, but how does the final thing we see in a magazine or a book, what has the stylist done to uh, achieve that? They have tweezers. They have some sprays. They work with this thing. I don't even like working with stylists. I think I've only worked twice in the 20 years I've been doing this. I I feel like the chef does a really good job. Some of them are better than others. Um, But I'll just tweak it a little so that it looks balanced. But I like taking what the chef does and not what the stylist wants to do with it. So when you look in magazines, you mean this stuff is perfect. Quarter pound with cheese never looked better. So that's what a stylist does. They just make it look really clean and nice and all that. My pictures, I think, are lovely just the way they are. Well, what does a stylist use? I mean, I understand what fashion stylists do, but how do you dress up food? Well, you know what? If Like if you have tomatoes, they'll probably have extra tomatoes and they'll cut them so that the slices are perfect, so that the fried stuff is perfect. Uh, ice cream, you know, they used to use all kinds of stuff. There was only one time in 20 years that I somebody used, I think it was Crisco or something. I'm also the fastest shooter in the business, first of all, because I'm not experienced. I'm not, I'm not knowledgeable, so I don't think about all the little details maybe you're supposed to. And with ice cream, I've always shot it before it melted. And then there's times where we let it melt a little, so it looks like you really want to eat it. <laughs> And they'll, they'll have a lot of vegetables or lettuce. They'll get ones with the leaves or, you know, curved just right, you know, uh, that kind of thing. But that's not your style. No, no. And I work in the restaurant. I don't do any studio shooting anymore. Although I never did. When I had a studio, I never did food. I was doing products and stuff. Uh, but now I go to the chefs and um, I can tell you a real quick story about this. I don't know whether you're going to ask me. Uh, with this uh, Tokes in Black. I did 77 chefs in 46 cities in 50 days. That was pretty intensive. Yeah, and, and it, was, it was wonderful. And because I have no equipment, I just had a carry-on bag. I had a, a backpack with my camera equipment. And then I had a carry-on bag with 
my clothes for seven days. So I carried that all in a car, uh, carry-on bag, and that's that's the way I traveled, and it was good, and it was exciting, and it was crazy. It, it sounds like it, but what what fun! Did you get to eat the food you photographed? Of course. Oh, I envy that. Well, you know what? I don't know if I appreciate it as much as you would. So next time you should come with me. Oh, that would be fun. Well, I have had the pleasure of dining more than once at Red Rooster, the restaurant in Harlem owned by the famous chef Marcus Samuelson, charismatic guy, just marvelous. And he wrote the foreword to Tokes in Black. Yes, he did. And he sent me a wonderful email thanking me for doing this book and giving the Black Chefs a platform to work off of. Oh, he is a mensch. And he mentioned six women, including Sylvia Woods, Edna Lewis, and Leah Chase. As he writes, we stand on the shoulders of Black women who wrote the first and second chapters of American food and Black American cooking. Alan, what did you learn from your involvement in this project? I learned how important the slaves were in forming the American cuisine with all the things, all the, the, the food that they brought from Africa that you know people today think it, you know, it grows upstate New York, uh, which it does now. And I didn't realize how important it was to the culture of American cuisine. There is an exhibition going to be at the African American Museum in New York. And uh, my book is going to be the basis for their first panel discussion. How wonderful. Well, we are excited about the discussion you will have today with Kim Severson. Batman, congratulations on Tokes in Black. It is a wonderful volume and an important book in advancing the history and significance of black cooking. Well, I am flattered. I really, I really am, and I thank you much. Food photographer Alan Bat, better known as Batman. His latest book is Tokes in Black, a celebration of black chefs. Batman will be in a virtual conversation with our favorite New York Times food writer, Kim Severson, at 6 p.m. today, part of the Decatur Book Festival online. They'll talk about culinary photography and black chefs working in the industry. In a moment... We'll take in a photography exhibition at Agnes Scott. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. 
That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Homeless people lose still more than a place to live and food to eat. A loss of dignity adds to the despair. An exhibition at Agnes Scott College is looking to amplify some voices residing in our nation's streets. Searching for home opened earlier this month at the Dalton Gallery and will be on view through December 12th. Atlanta artist Daniel Troppi is among those whose works are on display. Here he explains how he began photographing homeless Atlantans. I took several photography classes when I started. My background is painting, so I literally was a painter for all of my life and then gave it up and got rid of my art supplies, picked up a camera, took classes, and immediately after taking classes, you really need to get a subject matter. As a photographer, what do you want to focus on? What do you really... And I have always loved people, and I like talking to people. I love hearing their stories, and it was a no-brainer for me. I really just picked it up and started uh, focusing on people. I think the people that really intrigue me the most are people who are dealing with homelessness because I, in my opinion, you really have to be a strong person to live on the streets. If you're weak and you're meek, it's a very tough place to be. And that intrigued me. And I, I was interested in researching that. And, and I just started photographing people, you know, asking them if I could photograph them and listen to their stories. And that's really how it started. I can imagine that taking pictures of people in such a vulnerable state must be difficult for them and sometimes may feel intrusive. How do you walk that line between showing homeless people and yet not exploiting them? You have to do it with a lot of integrity and dignity. That's how you have to approach it. And a lot of the subject matter, I have built up a relationship with them. I have they have seen me around. I've handed supplies to them and, and got to know them. And I always ask for permission. And, you know, before I asked anybody if I could photograph them, I asked them if they would, you know, mind sharing a little bit of their story with me. And that kind of breaks the ice. They can see that I'm genuinely interested in what's going on. And in their lives and I want to hear it. And, and, then, and then I'll ask them, I mean, do you mind if I photograph them? And I've actually had people tell me, you're the first person that actually asked for permission. And that was stunning that people, you know, would walk up to anybody and just start photographing them without getting their permission as if they 
were not really there like they're invisible on some kind of a level and i think you have to do it with a lot of integrity and i you know for me it's it's asking and it's gaining their trust and it's it's building that relationship with people many of your subjects are smiling or seem at ease in your pictures how do you approach them in order to make them feel comfortable enough to be in front of the camera you know not every baddie will want to be photographed and i totally understand that and i get that and um but for the ones that do i think are in some way honored and proud and pleased to participate in this you know and i'm trying to document people's stories and their photographs because i'm working on a book i want a, a photograph book i want their stories side by side i want people to be heard i want them to be seen i want to bring them in from what people have for so long put them in little boxes and put them away they're not in a box anymore they're out in public they're all around us they're in every zip code in every neighborhood in our country so i am inviting them in to announce to their neighborhood their their city their the world who they are and they, I give, I, I really feel like I'm, I want to give them that opportunity to be presented in a way that they want to be presented, that they choose to be presented, not how people manufacture or whatever, a story or whatever. I want them to tell me the story. In fact, your photography of the homeless led you to launch your nonprofit called Yimby. Georgia. Can you tell us what YIMBY stands for? Yes, yeah. YIMBY is an acronym, so it stands for Yes in My Backyard. Yes in My Backyard. I believe, like a lot of people, that uh, homelessness is truly in all of our backyards. It's in all of our neighborhoods. Again, it's in every zip code and area code. And that's why the name EMB, Georgia, Yes in My Backyard, really resonated with the nonprofit that I, that, you know, I launched it, uh, launched in mid-February, right before this pandemic. <laughs> wow. What does the organization do? We, our, our mission is to engage, encourage, get people uh, excited or interested and how they can help homelessness in their neighborhoods. It can be if you're in uh, the West Coast, the East Coast, the heartlands of America, the, the southern borders of Texas, wherever you live. When you're dealing with homelessness, we try to provide a template and they see me leading by example. But our mission is to get people excited about how they can participate and help with homelessness where they see it, in their neighborhoods, in their communities. But it, it, it really is to encourage other people to start 
maybe a group. If I have a wonderful story. I was helping a veteran not too long ago. Uh, at, he, he was standing outside the restaurant. I was walking in. He asked me for help. I said, come in. He, we, he asked me for a meal. And I said, yeah, I'll buy you a meal. Come in. And he came in. And as we were getting our food and, and we were talking, and he's a veteran and he's in his early 40s. So I took the photographs and I, I gave him a backpack. I gave him any supplies that I had in my car and handed it to him and, and wrote down a little story and I posted it on my Facebook page or Yimby uh, Facebook page. And the next day or two, I got an email or a message from a woman who is in the military, stationed in one of the uh, Caribbean islands. And she said, thank you for helping a fellow veteran. But I wanted to tell you that you have inspired me to create a little version here on the island. And Lois, that to me was like winning the lottery. And I've had more people that have started to let me know what they're doing in their neighborhoods, that they see that, you know, me giving you know, hygiene kits away, backpacks, sleeping bags, whatever we give away. We give away so many things. But they see me doing that, and they're doing that in their neighborhoods. And that's the mission of Yimby, Georgia. You mentioned starting Yimby in mid-February. How has COVID-19 changed the way you interact with the homeless? Well, I, I tell you, it, uh, it's, oh, gosh, before all of that, I would drive around and I would hand out tents and sleeping bags and backpacks and socks and blankets. And, you know, if it's winter, I gave them gloves and scarves and whatever. When this happened in March and the city of Atlanta was shut down, I was driving around and I saw so many people hungry. Their stores were closed. The, the convenience stores were closed. Nobody was downtown. Nobody could hand anybody a dollar. There were so many people that were hungry. And I came, I just started to shift from giving them the tents and stuff to really focusing on giving meals to people. And we created, I would put it on my Facebook page. I would have people say, I'll make 30 mils. Daniel, I'll make 40 mils. Here I am. Come pick it up. What do you need, Daniel, to make a mill? And I, we organized that, and I, we started handing out mills. And Lois, I can't tell you that when this first happened to me, when I handed a mill downtown and I turned around, I took one step. I heard the brown paper bag rip. I took the second step and I turned around and I saw people inhaling the food because they were hungry. And it shocked me. I mean, it was shocking. And that's when I knew we really needed to focus on getting more meals out there. And that's what we did. We, on any given week, we would organize any meals, I mean, we, would, we were handing out meals that were in the 400 to 600 meal range every week. And we did that for the longest time. I had restaurants contacting me at the very beginning when they were closing the restaurants and they did not want their food to go to waste. And they would say, I've got all this food. If I make the meals, can you deliver them? I'm there. I'm there. I was working seven days a week 
we were getting the food out to people. Daniel, you use a 35 millimeter camera. Why not digital in this digital age? Oh, Lois, I'm such an, I, you know, I, I still listen to albums like uh, Miles Davis and Lena Horne and, and uh, Peggy Lee on the, my turntable. So I really have always been intrigued and interested in the art of photography. And I always felt like the art of photography was a very un- misunderstood art form. I was intrigued by it. And I liked the process of photographing somebody and then having to go into the dark room, which thankfully, you know, I used the dark room at Creative Circus, thanks to the director there, Greg. And there's nothing more magical than going in and pouring the chemicals and putting that paper in and watching that develop in front of you. It's pure magic. And that's really what I was intrigued by. And I know it's not instant because we live in such a world where everything needs to be done yesterday, but I kind of wanted to just make that art form more valid to me. I wanted to validate it on every level. And I think it's funny because when I would take people's, at the very beginning, when I was taking people's portraits, they'd say, well, let me look at it. Let me look at it. And I turned the camera around and they were like, what? And I'm like, this is not digital. I mean, I've got to go into the dark room. I've got to process the roll of film, the negatives, and then I've got to take those negatives and then go into the dark room, put them in the enlarger. And step by step by step, you have the print. And they're like, oh my God, you are old school. I heard that so many times. You are old school. I said, I am old school. I still listen to music on the turntable. (laughs) You are not alone with that. Daniel, what stereotypes about homelessness do you hope to dismantle through your work and your photography? Oh, Lois, thank you for asking that. Oh, I I really, I mean, thank you. That's a very powerful question. And today I've met people who became homeless that were accountants. They were restaurant managers. A one woman who lived in her car that has a PhD. I've met all walks of life that were homeless, that are homeless. Uh, I've met and talked to people who were nurses, worked in the healthcare profession, that something tragic happened in their lives. You know, they, they missed a check or some illness happened or a divorce happened. Anything, anything can happen today, anything. And really there's so many more people in our country and in our world that are one, two paychecks away from really living in a tent. And that's startling. What is the next goal for Yimby or the next step? We have four goals that we want to focus on for Yimby, Georgia, and they're all very important. One of them is doing shower and laundry trucks, getting shower and laundry trucks out there hitting the streets and 
and providing a good clean shower and letting them do their laundry. Then the other one is a food truck. I want to work with local chefs and uh, food banks to get food out to the food desert people, not just for the homeless people, but for the elderly, the handicapped, the people who can use a good, hot, healthy meal. The third one is uh, tiny home communities. I want to build, do tiny home communities in all parts of, the, uh, of Atlanta. And the fourth one, and I think it's the most important one, is to open up thrift stores. Not just to get our message out about our nonprofit, but say, for instance, you are homeless and you come into the thrift store and you need not only clothing, but a tent or whatever. We'll give you all that. We'll take care of you. But you need glasses or you need uh, dental care, or you need to get housing. We're gonna have social workers in the back of our thrift store providing services from the time we're open to the time we're closed. So when you come in, we're gonna help you and get you the supplies you need to make your life a little easier, but we're also going to connect you with social workers that can help you beyond today. And that's what's so powerful. We need, you know, to get those uh, ambitious goals set or met, we need a great deal of sponsorships. We need corporate sponsorships. We need people that will see what we're doing and climb on board and say, let's get those food trucks out. Let's get those laundry trucks out there. Let's do those tiny home communities. I love the idea that the thrift stores, Daniel, I want them in every community in Atlanta. (laughs) Well, (laughs) you are so ambitious and I have to say, it's so wonderful that it's all motivated by your deep concern for others. And the world would be much better if more people had your humanity, Daniel. Thank you very much. Oh, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Atlanta artist Daniel Troppi is the founder of the nonprofit organization Yimby, Georgia. Troppi's photos are part of the exhibit Searching for Home. The show will be on view in the Dalton Gallery of Agnes Scott College through December 12th. This is City Lights on WABE Atlanta. Forests are often the settings of fairy tales, and with good reason. They can be magical places, connecting us with life from ages ago, while providing refuge from the present. Atlanta has a forest in the very center of the city, That it survives to this day is largely thanks to an early 20th century visionary named Emily Harrison. Her story is told in an essay by Janice Ray that is part of Fernbank Forest, a book of photographs by Peter Essek. He took the pictures of Fernbank Forest from 2015 through 2017. When he joined me in August, Peter Essig talked about the origin of this project. I received 
a commission from Fernbank Forest through the generosity of a donation from my gallery. And he gave a donation for me to photograph the forest while it was being restored uh, and was opened back into the public. As far as the very beginning of the forest, there was a man, Z.D. Harrison, who was uh, a clerk on the Georgia Supreme Court, and he was the first owner of the property. And his daughter, Emily Harrison, uh, lived on the property for most of her life. And she was the one who was responsible for starting Fernbank Museum and for protecting the forest. In what ways was Emily Harrison extraordinary in her academic achievements as well as her philosophy of education? Yeah, she was a real visionary, an environmentalist way ahead of her time. And she had a, an idea called the classroom in the woods. And uh, she had studied about how it was good for school children to spend time in nature. And so that was her dream, was to have Fernbank be preserved as an old growth forest and also be a place where students and children could go. And this has proven out over time uh, with a lot of studies recently that school children do uh, calm, are more calm and they're uh, more happier when they spend time in uh, forest woodlands. She founded an out-of-door school in Sarasota, Florida, and wanted to start a similar school here in 1908. What became of that? Well, she never realized that particular dream, but what she ended up doing was she got a, a nonprofit started, which was the Fernbank Museum. And there was a 48-year lease, which was given to the DeKalb County Schools. And uh, before she passed away uh, in the 1960s, she was able to realize that dream. And what happened was that it was used very well by uh, the DeKalb County Schools. Uh, but what happened over time was that a lot of invasive species came in and uh, the forest really needed to be maintained. And as, as a school district, they would take kids there, but they really didn't have the funds or expertise to do that. So that's what in 2012, the Fernbank uh, Museum got the forest uh, back after the, this 48-year lease had expired. And they um, started the process of uh, taking out a lot of these invasive species that had been come in from the neighboring uh, homes and yards. Through what efforts did the forest remain intact? Well, the Fernbank Museum has spent over 10,000 hours, uh, person hours, uh, very carefully uh, restoring the forest. And uh, one metaphor would be how you would restore a real 
um, famous painting, uh, you have to very carefully take take out these invasive species, but you have to leave and not touch all the wonderful native uh, flowers and vegetation. So the the forest floor, when I first saw it in 2015, had. Uh, a lot of English ivy and Chinese wisteria that was growing along uh, the bottom of the forest floor. And this, this was sort of choking out a lot of the native species. So this process that, that Fernbank has uh, committed to, uh, it's, it's a long-term project, it's very time consuming and uh, expensive at, at some levels, but they, have done a great job and it is a an ongoing project because these seeds continue to blow in and, and never, sort of <laughs> never never ending forever project i guess mm. would you describe your visit to what's mentioned in the book as the uncommodified part of fernbank and the impact of that experience on you Part of this commission, I was able to come and go into Fernbank Forest uh, whenever I wanted to. I spent a lot of time early in the mornings. Um, this old growth area is very special. It's a 65 acre section uh, that has never been logged or, or cut. And so you have these 300 year old trees along with small saplings as well. And uh, it's a functioning old growth forest. And that's what makes it very special to have a, uh, a forest of this quality right in a downtown location in the middle of a metropolitan. And you were first taken there by a ranger who described himself as the luckiest person in the world. I read that your father was a science teacher, Peter. How did his career influence your own? Well, he had a great intellectual curiosity and as a teacher, and he also uh, was an outdoors person. Um, our family, we grew, I grew up in Southern California and we spent a lot of time on the weekends and the summers. Uh, we were some of the original backpackers and hikers and joggers and skiers and all that kind of thing. So he, he is definitely, and uh, my mother is also interested in the same type of thing. So they both were a big influence uh, on my appreciation of nature. Hmm. So how did you go from that first magical trip into the forest that's described to this beautiful book of photography. How do we get from there to here? Well, uh, I think you have to first spend some time. And when I first went there, if, if I'm very honest, I was looking, I was saying, wow, I, I don't know if I can really do some great pictures here. You know, I, a lot of nature photographers love to go to 
the great national parks like Yellowstone or Yosemite or down to Patagonia, these dramatic uh, mountains and rivers. And so when you look at Fernbank at first, you say, well, it's a, it's a beautiful forest. You know, it's, and so it took me a little time, but I, I really sort of fell in love with, with uh, just the magical uh, lights and the different seasons and the fact that I was there often in this you know, beautiful setting just all by myself, you know, very early in the morning. So that's, that was what sort of led me to, to see that there was these different moods and the lights and the color and the sort of the, the cycles of the forest from the decay to the growth. Uh, and that's, that's what started, started to lead to uh, a larger project that ultimately became the book. Yes, and in fact, the series of fine art photographs are in the museum's collection. Yes, we did. Uh, when I originally had finished the uh, project, we had a, an exhibit at Burnbank Museum. And we, at that time, I had donated a portfolio of uh, around 40 images that are in the uh, collection, the permanent collection of Fernbank. Hmm. Beech leaf pine tree is the first photo we see. The tree trunk brought to mind Nolde's famous painting of the scream. And, and then when I saw the next photo, a two-page photo, forest and pond, I thought about George Surratt's pointillism, tiny dots conveying an image, and and I stopped myself. I, I paused to remind myself of something quite basic, of course, that painters painters strive to recreate nature. Here, you are capturing nature, and uh, a reminder that is. It is in this pure context that we should experience and and appreciate the natural world. Uh, yes, I I have always believed that uh, nature, as especially uh, wilderness or undisturbed or untrammeled nature, uh, as a subject matter just provides uh, unlimited opportunities for an artist. And uh, the examples that you mentioned were in some ways an artist maybe taking an aspect of nature and, and you know, um, just being inspired by it. And what I have done is just tried to, to capture it uh, in its real uh, raw form and in its, there is these very, very different uh, forms and designs uh, that that are all present in one individual forest. Yes, and clearly you can tell I'm more of an indoors person if my references are, are <laughs> hanging in museums. Um, 
There are three subjects you present as collages. Why did you choose to display those images in that style? Well, I had originally sort of looked at one of them. It was sort of like 16 pictures of thumbnail, and you sort of originally, they always kind of sort of pick out the one that you think is the best one. That's sort of the editing process. Uh, but when I looked at them, uh, one, I, I, I just couldn't find the one. And then I started seeing that as a whole, it actually worked together. So in some ways, uh, I, it was a, a little bit of a metaphor maybe for how the forest works, that you have individual trees and then you have a whole forest and that each of the, the trees work together. Um, the pictures in a collage, what I found is the, you look at the one individual picture and you'll know, see how it relates to the one next to it. And then when you look, you kind of go back a little farther, you kind of see them all together as an individual picture. And so that's sort of just different ways of seeing and trying to think of uh, a more, I guess, a contemporary or a more personal vision of how, how to represent some of the feelings that you get uh, in a place like Fernbank. It's very effective. The wildlife pictures are wonderful. A barred owl, blue jays, a green frog. 2016 is one of my favorites. Were these subjects more difficult to capture? I mean, they move around. Yeah, they, they are. Um, the green frog, there, there's a group uh, from Fernbank Museum and some volunteers that uh, once a month, right at dusk, and I think it's like on a Wednesday evening, they go and they count all the amphibians. And amphibians are special because they're indicative of good water quality. And so if you have um, like salamanders and frogs, then uh, that's really great for the water quality. And we, we debated a little bit about the, the frog. Uh, Bill Bowling, the, the editor, uh, publisher at Fall Line really liked that picture. He said it just made him smile every time he saw it. So that's why we ended up, had to put that one in. Oh, he is wonderful with great big eyes. Peter, would you talk about the last photograph of the book, why you chose to end with a sunrise over the Atlanta skyline? Well, that that picture was taken with a drone and about, you know, partway through uh, doing this, these photographs, I realized that, you know, that I had a lot of really nice nature photos, but I really didn't show, you know, that it was an urban forest. And uh, that's part of the beauty of it. When you go in, in the firm bank, you sort of, get into a different realm uh, but i i had the idea of you know using a drone and i had learned to fly it and so 
we decided we either had to put that picture as the first one or the last one and uh, decided that it would be sort of a, a neat surprise to see see all of this this beauty and then at the end you kind of see that you know not too far away is this downtown Atlanta and all of the, the big cities. There is an excellent essay Janice Ray provides in the book and you wrote some haikus. Would you read your final haiku? Fusion of forest and city, Piedmont landscape of refuge and hope. It's a beautiful note to end on. Peter Essek, thank you very much. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you for shining a little light on Fernbank Forest. Peter Essek, his book of photography, Fernbank Forest, is available now. A little guidebook and map of the forest comes with the volume. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, we'll preview the Elevate Public Art Festival in Atlanta's historic West End. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E. Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WAB yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.